When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is loss aversion and what are some of the practices and examples of the things that we make decisions on with loss aversion? So loss aversion is one of the big ways that behavioral economics and behavioral psychology differs from standard economics. And it says basically the value of an object depends whether you own it or not. Thanks so much for being on the show. John, thanks for having me. It's going to be fun. Yes. And you said, as you said, first interview in your uh, podcast for promoting the book. So very honored and uh, excited to be having you here. Well, happy to be here. And uh, I was doing a little research. I I think it's going to be something that will be interesting and uh, hopefully enlightening for your listeners and viewers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, this is particularly coming at the right time for me. I mean, I'm always trying to make better decisions and trying to figure out what are some of the cognitive biases that I have in terms of the way I think. And even more recently, this is just something that I've been constantly thinking about. So when I had the opportunity to interview you, I was, I was particularly excited just to get into what are some of the cognitive biases that not just myself, but many people have and, um, and kind of what that roots from. So maybe that would be a good place to start, which is as human beings, why are we so susceptible to having cognitive biases? Why, why are there certain things that are wired in our brain that helps us make wrong decisions and terrible decisions for some people in our lives? So the book tries, and what I'm trying to do is change that conversation a little bit away from how people make bad decisions to how they basically are trying to make decisions in a world where the decisions aren't just theirs, but also the person who's designing the choice. Mm-hmm. I make the distinction so to make language easier between designers, that's the people who actually decide how to lay out the choice, and choosers, and that's you and me when we go to a website. So the person who did the web design made lots of choices, and we don't normally think about those actually influencing us, but they do. So it looks like it's our mistake, but it's also in part, if you think it's a mistake, the result of how the information has been displayed. And so the whole point of choice architecture in a good world is that people will actually make better choices when you present choices to them in a way that's helpful. Got it. Got it. So there's a two-sided relationship there where it's not just we're perceiving things that are uh, on our daily basis, there, there's other, I'm trying to figure out the right way to frame it, but there's other um, ways of perceptions that, that other people have given to us. An example might be like, instead of saying $60, it would be $59 uh, as, as pricing that we get right. you know, on, on a daily basis. Um, 
But if we were just to look at why for us, you know, as human brains, why, why are we so vulnerable to uh, kind of falling for these? <clears throat> Sorry. We wouldn't be nearly as depressed about our, our decision-making ability if we didn't have these theories about how you should make decisions. And those actually are useful for just like having theories in physics is useful. But in the real world, we often think about things as having friction. And one of the sources of friction when it comes to decision-making is we have very limited information ability, ability in some domains. Mm -hmm. Some things we're amazing at. Understanding spoken word is something that took computers, and even now they aren't very good at it, but it's taken millions of dollars. And I was a graduate student at Carnegie Mellon when I actually saw the very first demonstration of a language understanding system. And it was actually, I think the sentence was something complicated, like knight to pawn, king's pawn four. It was just amazing. And it literally took 20 minutes. I I tell a story in the book about the lights almost dimming. So that's something that's very, we're very good at. And most other intelligences are not even now. Now compare that to sort of, you know, asking us to multiply two 10 digit numbers in our head. We couldn't do that. Although for that same computer, it's quite good. So the issue is basically some things we're very fluent at Mm -hmm. where it's very easy and other things aren't. And that's, there's lots of reasons for that. Got it. Got it. Well, I know one of the, one of the, um, studies and research you've done is around the Curry theory. And when I was reading it, it, it kind of reminds me of, and it kind of, I guess, relates to this idea of loss aversion, yes. right? Um, for people that maybe aren't aware of it, what is loss aversion and what are some of the practices and examples of the things that we make decisions on with loss aversion? So loss version is one of the big ways that behavioral economics and behavioral psychology differs from standard economics. And it says basically the value of an object depends whether you own it or not. So I'm going to have this nice little demonstration, this mug. I walk into a classroom and I actually give half the students a mug the very first day of class and the other half don't get a mug. I ask the students who have the mug how much you want to sell the mug. And the students who don't have a mug, how much would you be willing to pay to buy a mug? And notice I did it randomly. So they, on average, they should have the same value. And typically when I do that, and this is a demonstration that is due to uh, Richard Thaler, Jack Kinech, and Danny Kahneman, is you get a two-to-one difference. It's the same mug. They've even done studies accidentally where they had the price tags on them, and they still get the same result. Wow. Which is really amazing. So what seems is that giving up things has more, it generates more pain than acquiring things gives us pleasure. And what does that say about human psychology and, and why we think that way? That's a tough question. And one of the things you're seeing that's happening in the science of decision-making is moving beyond just describing phenomena yeah. to understanding what are the reasons you're, we show these effects. So a simple way of thinking about this to go back to query theory is when I first think about the mug, let's say I own a mug, I think about all the great things I can do with a mug. Right. That's the first query I make. Then what do I do? I sit there and say, 
Well, what could I do with the money? And not so much comes to memory. Memory is a very interesting thing in the sense that it tends to glom on to the first thing, and there's interference for the second query. So that's what causes, in our idea, loss aversion, which is basically, I'm thinking of how cool this mug is. And then I can't think about the other things I would do with the money. Mm. But if I don't have the mug, I can think about the other things I could do with the money and very little about what I could do with the, with the mug. And we actually do lots of studies that show that people are actually thinking about different things. Yeah. Is there anything around the evolution of how this has been wired into our brains just from our ancestors where from a, from a loss perspective, if we were our ancestors were to lose certain, maybe it's a, it's an animal they were about to eat or um, something that was essential for their survival. The alternative was that they were likely going to die. They weren't going to really survive. Is there anything around that where because of the of that life and death situations that we our ancestors have been through, that's still kind of wired into our brains? So I've been lucky enough to spend time with some very good cultural anthropologists, and they make the argument that before we had systems of laws and property rights, it's those people who were willing to defend the hyena they just killed right. who survived. People who didn't, wouldn't fight starved, much like you're saying. So it's possible, entirely speculative, but it's possible that loss aversion has some evolutionary underpinning. Although yeah. I, I don't want to say there's like clear science because we can't time travel. I I always try to relate things to evolution. So this might be certainly a bias thing, I'm sure. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure evolutionary you know, um, uh, researchers have really thought about this. But it, it also kind of reminds me of why we're so attracted to people that put themselves in situations where they could potentially lose it all. You know, this could be why we're so attracted to gambling, perhaps, where people put everything on the line with the opportunity to lose everything or sports because a lot of sports is zero sum games or you either win the gold medal or you lose the gold medal. Um, is, is that, that is something that I wonder about is like, is that the reason why we're so attracted to certain situations like this? Because we put themselves in our situations and we perceive that, wow, like that, that terrifies us. We would, that does that kind of goes against our evolutionary thinking in terms of what is natural in human behavior. So it's interesting. One way to think about the question is as an observer, as someone, a spectator, that is more interesting, but let's yeah. flip it to the decision-maker themselves. What does that make them do? It makes them more timid. They won't mm -hmm. take the risk they would otherwise do so. So there's a lot of work, for example, in um, looking at sports decision-making that people don't do things that seem like they should do, but the downside keeps them from taking advantage of that. The classic example of this, I think, is basically why don't more football players, football coaches actually go for it when it's fourth in inches? If you do the statistical analysis, it looks like you'd be better off, but you also know that if you don't make it, you're going to be ridiculed in the press. Mm. So yeah. it's loss aversion can actually have two faces. From an observer's perspective, we sort of might be fascinated, but what's yeah. much more important, I think, is the fact that it keeps us from actually doing things that might be, if we took lots of gambles, in our best interest. Got it. So you're saying in the long-term perspective, from a statistical perspective, 
it's actually healthy for us to have this loss aversion type of thinking and it actually serves us or? No, just the opposite. What I'm really saying, just just to be clear, I'm sorry, is that loss aversion keeps us from doing things that if we look at, you know, the classic cases, I come in, here's a coin, you lose $1, you gain $1, 50-50. Do you want to take that gamble? Well, if loss aversion applies, people will say no, because that loss hurts relative to the game. Sure. But sure. If I say, how about if I let you do this 100 times? There's almost no chance you can walk away losing money. And it's very likely you're going to walk away with thousands of dollars. Mm. It's that framing how wide we see the choice, which right. is important. Right. And the idea there is like, if, you know, just sticking to the idea of money is that we gain, we lose more satisfaction losing $10,000 than the equivalent gain, uh, uh, the, the, the kind of the, the, the gain that we get from, from winning $10,000. That's right. So the idea is we, as it's almost as if we think about the, the mug or the money differently, if we have it or we don't have it. Mm-hmm. So the mug looks really good to the people who have it because they're thinking about all the positives right? and they can't retrieve what they would do with the money to go back to query theory, but to the seller, I'm giving up the money and that's painful. I could have used that to buy lunch. We actually have people type types what they're thinking. And my favorite is probably someone who said it's 1130. I could have a mug, but that's not going to buy me lunch. (laughs) So they actually uh, sort of assemble construe a very different reality depending upon whether they're they're buyers or sellers got it got it and is there a way for us to overcome loss aversion have you worked with people that have gone through this because pretty much all of us have loss aversion in some ways and we can kind of go into you know where people may have less loss aversion. I imagine Mm -hmm. it's it's areas where people have a little bit more expertise or knowledge or specialties on, but are there kind of proven pathways for people to overcome that mindset of loss aversion or at least minimize it? So a simple trick that we use in experiments is to ask people to change the queries. So you may have a mug, but I ask you first, what are the things you would do with the money? Then I ask you, what are the things you would do with the mug? Mm. And just reversing the order actually makes the endowment effect go away. Hmm. Is there another example that maybe something that might be more practical that people go through in their, in their everyday lives? Maybe it's, um, you know, because something that I, you kind of generally deal with is, is like some cost theory as well, where, you spend time, money, but especially time in, in a relationship or a project and you can't let go because you've already spent so much effort and investment into it. But oftentimes letting go is the most healthy part and the most you know, better on your return on investment. Um, how would you frame that based on kind of the solution you were talking about? So most people think about sunk costs as being a, a form of loss aversion. And the key is to, to leave the relationship, to sell the stock, to whatever it is I need. I have to realize, I have to face up to the loss. And that's yeah. unpleasant. So there is actually a very cute commercial that was done um, by Schwab a number of years ago that basically 
sold people the service of selling your losing stocks. Hmm. For $95, they would clean your your financial house. So one way of doing it is getting other people to do the cleaning for you. Some people have cleaning people come in to clean their house. Well, you could have a cleaning person clean out your your funds. So I think the idea of actually keeping you from having to face, from having to think about those losses is really a pretty viable and, and cute idea. Right. So if you're in like a two-year relationship with a girlfriend or boyfriend, having one of your best friends break up the relationship for you. Yeah. Is I don't give relationship advice, <laughs> but I certainly would say if I want to think about it, I'd say, think about a time before you were in this relationship or think right. about a time after you'd be in the relationship before you obsess about the, the, the current relationship. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Kidding. Of course. Um, yeah. And, and also it, it kind of makes me think that this idea, you, you kind of frame it another way. It's a, it's called the endowment effect, I guess. That's the sort there. of official name. Right. Right. And for buying and like, selling, loss aversion has many faces, but for buying and selling, that's what people normally think about is the endowment effect. Is a more specific term to, to phrase right. it. Right. Um, I mean, it, is there some narcissism in play for, for that's kind of getting people to think this certain way where if you own something by not being able to step outside of yourself and put yourself in someone else's shoes, I don't know if that has a correlation to narcissism where maybe people that have a bigger sense of narcissism have a higher level of uh, loss aversion or, or endowment effect because they believe that whatever is something they own or something that's a part of them is centered around, you know, at a greater, le- greater level than what my other people may have. Is there any studies around that? Not that I know. It's, it's an interesting question. People have thought about a lot what, yeah. what areas and what kinds of people are more loss averse. Mm-hmm. And again, sort of comes back to query theory. One of the things it turns out is older people tend to be a little bit more loss averse. Hmm. And why would that be? I see I'm puzzling you, which is a good thing. Here's here's the thing is it turns out as we get older, this mental process called interference becomes more powerful. So if you think about loss aversion coming from, I think about what I have and think about what I could do with the other things. I get more imbalance between what I can have and what I could have had. So thinking about the mugs, I think more about why that mug or why that wonderful LP I have from 30 years ago is so wonderful. I can't think about what I would do with the money if I sold it. So age is one of the things that increases loss aversion. Narcissism, not I don't know much about. Got it. Got it. And it's just a lot of experience, I guess you're saying, that comes with age and being able to have. No, it's, it's actually something more fundamental. It's actually the fact that as we get older, certain fundamental cognitive processes change. Hmm. And it's very depressing. But if you're somebody, I suspect I'm a little bit older than you, you can actually show that these processes start decreasing. I don't know if you're above 30, but if you're 30 or above from then. And they're actually, it's sort of a very, this is not something that is in the book, but older people have a harder time with rapid mental operations, like switching queries. Interesting. I'm 28, so I'm getting there. Yeah. I'm, I'm also a little bit weird in that sense. So I'm definitely more 
less uh, conservative, I guess, and certainly more on the higher risk side of things, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, with people that are more risk averse or sort of lot, have higher loss aversion, are there certain disadvantages and maybe certain career paths that they should uh, avoid or that they should be more thoughtful about? I mean, an example might be investing into certain asset classes or starting your own business if you have higher loss aversion. And because I, I read this study where like people that, you know, at least in America, there's a higher for people that have higher, um, sorry, lower loss aversion, they tend to be more wealthy. Interesting. What is the standard advice about loss aversion investing is actually a little, is very cute. And what it says is basically you shouldn't be looking at your portfolio every day. Right. <laughs> so stocks tend to go up and down a lot. And the more often you look at them, the more often you'll see losses. If you look at them every week, there's going to be bad weeks and good weeks. If you look at them a month, there'll still be bad weeks and good weeks, but they tend to average out closer to what you would see on average. If you look yeah. at them once a year, on average, they're going to go up. So if you look, you're going to see many more losses if you look at them very frequently. And so a very simple form of, of choice architecture is to, is to actually not present people with daily returns, present them with yearly returns when they're making investment decisions. Mm-hmm. We know that changes what they invest in and they'll invest in things that are in the short term risky. But if you're holding for the long term, like in retirement, so if you're saving for when you're 65, maybe maybe you're retired now, Sean, but if you're saving till, till later in life, you know, those little ups and downs are going to disappear over time. Got it. You mentioned choice architecture. Can you kind of give us a brief overview of, of what that is for people that haven't read the book yet? Absolutely. Um, when we present choices to people, we make a set of decisions, just like an architect makes a set of decisions when they're deci- designing a house. Yeah. And many of those should have no effect on someone's choices. Let me give you a good example, or one example. Um, you could describe the amount of fat in ground beef is either 80% lean or 20% fat. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize 80 and 20 add up to 100%. They're exactly the same thing. Yet, people find the 80% lean much more attractive. They actually pay more for it. And that's a good... So whoever has made the decision about how to label that attribute they've made a very big, they've had an influence on the, that designer has had a big influence on the chooser's choices. Got it. Got it. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. Now, kind of going back to what you were talking about with not looking at stocks every day, it, it's, it, it is interesting because it's kind of the, seems like it just comes down to patience, right? And then kind of looking at things at a more long-term perspective and, kind of makes me think that this, even in Wall Street, when you're looking at quarterly returns and asking CEOs to report on 
just the short-term profits of what they're doing and what are the short-term projects that they're working on. It, it kind of seems like a backward nature and goes against a lot of studies and, and research in terms of how the public should make investment decisions, does it not? Well, I mean, clearly thinking about short-term from the retail investor side is not consistent with what they want to do. The challenge when you talk about CEOs is sometimes they're getting essentially compensated for short-term risk. You know, they're looking, they're they are looking at the stock price because their bonus at the end of the year depends upon that. Right. For you and me in retirement savings, it's a long-term game. For them, it may not be. So it's you have to be a little bit careful when you try and judge the rationality, if you will, of CEOs who respond to short-term news. And that's because they, they're facing a market that reacts to short-term news. Right, right. I guess this is kind of the idea, though, where even the way CEOs are rewarded are often backwards because right. it, it kind of goes against this whole idea of, of long-term thinking. And, and in many ways, there is better outcomes of having a long-term perspective. Like it even makes me think about, you know, why are American elections four years long every year? We have to switch out into a new president and redo a lot of the things that, I mean, just look at what's happening with, with Afghanistan and all these things right now. We don't have to go too deep into politics, but, you know, some countries have eight years or 10 years and it kind of lets you, you know, if you're thinking about this from a corporate perspective, often the best companies are led by CEOs that have made long-term decisions and had to face the consequences ultimately, which is kind of the biggest part of being able to carry out the decisions and, and see it for the long-term. And um, yeah, I mean, you, you can apply your, your thesis around patience and long-term thinking to a lot of different aspects, I feel, in our society. Sure. I think the important point in, in lots of ways is what information we look at and what we don't look at, how often we look at it. So the nice thing about the investing example, it says looking at it too often is hazardous to your wealth. Yeah. Because you take very conservative bets, otherwise known as you know conservative stocks or bonds or things that have lower returns. Mm. So I think the whole point in choice architecture in lots of ways is getting people to look at the information that's useful for them and avoid the information that might help them make bad decisions. Going back to query theory, for example, when you actually ask people what they're thinking about when they see 20% lean, I'm sorry, 20% fast versus 80% lean, it's as if they're two different hamburgers. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, and you actually have people write down what they're thinking. They're actually retrieving not information that's very different about the same object. Right. Right. I even bought this uh, yogurt here in Mexico City where it, I mean, it's in Spanish, but it says no additional sugar added. And, my, the, and it says zero, right? It says 0% right. sugar added. So right. in my head, we, even without even looking at the package, I, I, you know, I'm sure most people think 0% sugar, but when you actually look at the package, it's like five grams of sugar. And from some of them is just from having fruits in general in the yogurt. And um, yeah, there's just so many different things that and I guess it's impossible not to avoid this because our brain is made to conserve energies to only pay attention to the things that are essential for survival and things that we really need to care about. But because there are so many advertisements and so many different 
people are so skilled at <laughs> deceiving us in some ways that it's it's almost seems impossible to avoid it completely. So it is impossible to avoid. So one of the things that I think about a lot is the distinction between choice architecture and nudging. Now, let me go back. Nudging is a very popular term. And originally, I think the people who wrote the book Nudge, uh, Richard Thaler and, and Cass Sunstein, thought about choice architecture and, and nudging being the same thing. And the reason is you cannot avoid choice architecture. Their example is a cafeteria line. Somebody has to, something has to be first, something has to be last. There's no option about having no, no order. You have to have an order. If I give you um, a choice between here is, I have a child, here are four things you can lay out. I can decide to do which four. I can decide to do four. I could do eight. These are all things that are choice architecture. You have to do them. Choice architecture is not optional. Now, unfortunately, people have taken that really nice description and have actually started using nudge as basically just trying to change people's mind. So I think an important thing to realize is that given that we do have limited information processing abilities, that we can think about everything, both in the world out there and in our minds, you know, we need to actually present choices in a way to people that gives them the best outcomes possible. Got it. Got it. So it's not about trying to make and avoid every single thing and try to make best decisions in every single thing. It's, it's really just trying to focus on what are the most essential things to you, right? Right. And given that you don't always control what information you're going to consider, let me give you one cute example that has something to do with query theory. Yeah. It turns out that most people, when they are approaching retirement age, have a choice about when to claim those Social Security benefits. Now, you can claim as early as 62 Okay, so 62, I get a certain amount of money. I get that same amount of money every year until I die. Mm. Or I can wait until as late as 70, and I get more money when I start claiming. Got it. Okay, so basically, I have a choice between, let's say, getting $2,000 a month at 62, or let's say, and it's actually quite a bit more, $3,200 at 70 every month. Right. Now, that's a choice, and I'm one or the other might be right or wrong, but two things. One thing is most people claim very early on. Is that a mistake? Not for many people. But what is true is the increase in your payments every year is 8% risk-free. That's a pretty good investment. If you told me I could get an 8% return compared to the what money I have in the bank, I would be pretty thrilled with it. You said every month? Every year, I'm sorry. Every year, okay. Every year, it's an eight percent increase. That's that's still a pretty good investment. Yeah, you know, on average, even though the stock market's done very well lately, eight percent is a pretty good rate of return, and there's no risk. Yeah. So what's interesting about that is people seem to claim very early. One thing we've been doing, we've been asking people, how long are you going to live? Because obviously. The longer you live, the better it is to wait because you're going to get the money over a longer period of time. And what's interesting about that is you can ask that question two ways. It's a lot like 20% fat versus agently. I could say, what age will you live to? Or what age will you die by? 
Mm. Notice I'm asking you essentially the same question. Yeah. yeah. And what would query theory says? When I ask the live to frame, I think about my Aunt Betty, who's lived 103. I think about the fact I, I have exercised this week, not much, but I have exercised. Um, if I think about the die by question, well, I smoked for a year in college. I am 10 pounds overweight. And the, the self you think about is very different. Hmm. We end up showing there's about a 10%, a 10-year increase in predictions about longevity in the live-to question compared to the die-by question. Wow. People think they're going to live a lot longer. And when we give them choices that look like Social Security choices, and other people have found this too, they actually wait to collect Social Security. Huh. So that's a place where the person who decides how to ask that question is going to influence people's behavior. Yeah, that's fascinating. Huh. And you could probably apply that to pretty much any aspect of the way you live your life, right? I mean, even, I mean, it might be good to talk about from the other side of the table of when you are trying to persuade someone or when you are trying to sell something to someone, what are the best ways to frame it? And from what I'm gathering, it's that you always want to, not always, but it's it, one of the things that you could do is to lead with what the other person might lose out on. And that could be a more uh, a persuading thing, kind of talking about loss aversion and so forth. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it depends a lot on what is the behavior you're trying to encourage. Right. Um, and also, we're good, I, I make the assumption that we're trying to get do what's in people's best interest. Now, sure. not all designers, i.e. choice architects, do that. And so we could later on perhaps have a conversation about bad or evil choice architecture. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about two options, and I know you've kind of touched on both of them. One of them is... Um, the options that are presented when making an organ donation. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other one is kind of more recent topic, which is like the iOS opt-in model, right? Where yes. it, that completely changed the way people see uh, their privacy standards. Um, we could kind of touch on the organic, uh, so their organ donations first and kind of talk a little bit about how, how that options are presented. They're both great examples of how choice architecture influences behavior. Yeah. And also how lots of behavioral science gets a little bit more complicated in the real world. So let's start with the organization. Um, it's actually a kind of a personal story. It turns out that I had um, a very serious form of cancer, mm-hmm. uh, Hodgkin's disease. And I ended up having to actually be my own donor for what's called a stem cell transplant. What is the Hodgkin's disease? Hodgkin's disease is a cancer of the lymph system. And I had actually relapsed. And I, you know, thanks to some amazingly talented oncologists, you know, obviously that was 20 years ago, knock on wood, I survived. But what was interesting to me, at least, is realizing that I could be my own donor, but for many, many, many needs, that's not a possibility. Uh, And I'd run into this woman who was actually, I was taking the subway up uh, in New York, campus is downtown, the medical center is uptown, I'm taking the subway up, and this woman asked me for directions. Um, It turns out I know the hospital very well, and she's going to the place where you're assessed to be a kidney donor. Mm. 
Now, what's interesting, she was making the decision to be a donor for her sister, it turns out. And at the same time, literally hundreds of people are dying every year in the U.S. because they don't have organs to transplant. So I got really fascinated by that question. Why is it that some people become donors and others don't? And I had actually spent a lot of time uh, talking to friends um, and realizing that in different European countries, there's lots of variation in who is a donor, what the percentage of people who agree to be a donor. So, for example, um, in Denmark, that percentage is very low, about 5%. In Sweden, which one could argue is a somewhat similar country, it's like 85%. Wow. So we started looking into this and we discovered the thing that happened is what happened if you did not make an active choice. So in other words, if I was a Dane and I didn't fill out the form, I would not be a donor. If I was a Swede and I did not fill out the form, I'd be considered a donor. Just automatically. It's Just automatic opt in. Okay. So think going to privacy, which is I think something you might be interested in. We see this all the time. Click here if you don't want us to track you. Right. So this is going to have broad, we'll come back to this with the Apple case in a second. Mm-hmm. So what I discovered is that these countries differ a lot in that. And we did some experiments. We just simply changed what the default was. What happened if you didn't make a choice? And thinking about what happens to your organs after you die isn't exactly a fun top thing to think about. Right. Um, and so people avoid the decision. And what's interesting about that is because they avoid the decision, the default is chosen. And so in our original studies, we got percentages that were like 20% of the people would be a donor if they had to opt in. 71% would be a donor if they had to opt out. Mm. Now it turns out, I think that was a while ago, that was 20 years ago. And actually people are more sophisticated now than they were then. But we still see when you look at these kinds of what we call default effects, big differences. So it turns out, I don't think we really know whether in the real world that would make a a difference because organ requests are quite complicated. So your family makes choices. There's lots of things going on. So I don't think I can claim in fact, the original paper was called Do Default Save Lives? I'm not sure if we know whether or not they do, but I do think they increase the number of people who agree to be donors. If you just look at what is characterized by this, when they sh- when they're, they show up. Now, families get to make decisions, so things are complicated, but it's been a very uh, important realization and a great illustration of the effect of defaults. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, particularly with organ donations, as you already pointed out, I think what's unique about that is with the opt-out model, it's very particular that people don't want to think about their deaths. And it's a topic that we all like to avoid and we don't like to think about because it kind of goes back to loss aversion. It's the loss of your life, for, for God's sakes, right? So it might be a particular example in that sense, but I wonder if there is something fundamental beyond if we were to remove this particular case of trying to avoid death with, let's say, privacy and the iOS update where people were, to, were asked to opt in instead of simply opt out. You know, I, Do you actually know the differences of what the numbers are for the previous of opt out 
uh, and what percentage of people actually ended up opting out versus what the end result was when Apple decided to ask them to opt in? So it's actually quite surprising. Um, it's really hard to find out. Not surprisingly, it's <laughs> because of privacy. <laughs> because of privacy. Because Apple doesn't want us to know, right? Um, right. Or didn't want us to know. And there have been some cute studies. My favorite one, um, and the book is is that these questions are not only are different opt in and opt out, but they're sort of buried in menus. I I think you have to go through four or five layers of menus to opt out of tracking. Yeah. And in the original, when, when, when tracking was first introduced in the iPhone, I think it was iOS eight. Um, Bottom line is that most, many people thought they had opted out, but they hadn't. Many more people thought they had opted out than really had partly because they didn't understand it. And finally, the question was posed originally as a double negative. Hmm. Press this button if you do not want to turn off tracking. If you wait, press this button if you do not want to opt out of tracking. This is double yes. negatives. Okay. So, so it was a double if they negative. Pressed it, meaning if they pressed it, they would opt out. So, pe- yes, people were confused. Yeah. And I'm so more now. people thought they had opted out than actually had. Now, right. Apple, in their wisdom, and because they see privacy as an important attribute, actually have changed that. And as you know, in the, in the last year, tracking has actually become potentially, depending upon how it's framed, but potentially yeah. the default is that you're not being tracked. And of course, companies that benefit from tracking, like Facebook particularly, have been very upset by that change. I mean, I'm, I'm a Facebook advertiser and I've, you know, I think a lot of my friends and people that have small businesses have certainly been hit. And I wonder if part of this is, you know, with Apple, I don't know what percentage of their revenue was, was around advertising with particularly around like advertising around app stores or selling their data. I don't know if they ever sold their data, but I wonder if at, at a certain point they just realized that most of the revenue comes from hardware sales and iPhones and, and, and now services that they just didn't even need to provide data and collect data on their own to, to make certain decisions. This is my bias hat, or this is a little bit my skeptic hat coming into play. Mm. Um, but it, it, it's shocking that it, my guess is it made a huge difference because Facebook is all over it. They obviously see the difference and um, it's causing such an uproar that I don't know what the numbers would be. Maybe it's double the number of people that are not opted in now versus before. But what does that say about human behavior? Ultimately, is is it just the fact that we're lazy (laughs) and that we're just saving our brain space for other things? Well, I mean, I'm not sure the most important thing in my life is go through five submenus to find out what I should (laughs) do. Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. So I I don't like, even when I teach this material, I don't really like the word rational or crazy or irrational. It's just that's the way we are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if we move away from that a second, it suggests that um, it's really important to try and present the options in ways that people find it easy to make the choice that they would, that they think is right. Now I'm not crazy. I don't think everyone on the web is doing this. So 
the fact that I often see what looks like a button. In computer science, by the way, they call this dark patterns. I don't know if you're familiar with the term. No, I'm not. Essentially, and there were actually recently hearing the FTC about this, but you've sometimes seen a, a, an ad where um, the b- button they want you to pick is bright and red, sort of like the Zoom leave button. Yeah. And the button they don't want you to pick is gray. The term they actually have is called ghost button. So it may be gray on gray. I've actually seen you're required to have an opt out in any spam email. Right. I saw one that actually was dark gray font on a black background. Oh, interesting. It was there, but no one would see it. Right. This is kind and of like now in the world of evil choice, choice architecture, sometimes, sure, sometimes sure. called by uh, Sunstein and Thaler sludge in contrast to nudge. Huh? Even Amazon does this. I tried to cancel my prime membership before and they had, was it Amazon? It was one of these companies, but they have multiple options of trying to keep you around and pause your membership or upgrade to annual is like bright yellow. And of course the other one's not even a button. It's just like a text link. Right. So in your mind, you think, okay, I'm trying to cancel that. And, but that's actually the cancel membership button. And it's, it's so confusing, right. For, for people that are in, in, in a rush and, yeah. I mean, so the people who study dark patterns, the guy who coined the term has a phrase for that, which is called the Roach Motel. I don't know if you remember the old black, I think it was black flag ads. The, the, the roaches go in and there's a sticky substance and they never leave. Yeah. And that's where it's very easy to buy a product and very hard to opt out, to get out of the product. So an example of this is very similar to the Amazon is almost all the newspapers you can get in a subscription online. You know, take two clicks to cancel that subscription. You have to make a phone call. Mm. The costs are asymmetric. Yeah. And who makes phone calls these days, right? And who makes phone calls? And you know what's going to happen. It turns out I recently did change my subscription. It was easy. But you assume you're going to be in hold hearing music for, you know, 30 minutes before you get to cancel your subscription. So you don't do it. And you're saying the the guy you mentioned that, revolved around the dark patterns. Is there a chance that the government could be involved at a certain point to make it certain regulations so that knowing that humans are susceptible to these types of situations, that they could be involved and they can regulate certain things around how memberships are canceled and stuff like that? So it's really an obvious and important question. And whenever I talk about this, it's something people ask. The challenge is of a legal solution, a regulatory solution, is is firms are quite clever. So how would you write such a law? Say the buttons have to be equal size and the same color. Well, then they'll figure out something else. So I think- Like a patent, right? For some cases, that's obvious. And there are things you should, like the uh, FTC, um, there was a case where someone actually was busted for this. They had four buttons. One was an opt-in button to some monthly payment, and it was below where you would see it unless you scrolled. In the newspaper, they used to call it below the fold. Mm-hmm. And so everybody was saying, okay, fine, go to the next page. In the meantime, they'd opt into this monthly cost. Mm. And there, of course, that was, that was misleading. The problem with legal, and the FTC has been having hearings on this. The problem is, how would you write a law in a way that would capture all the cleverness that people have? You know, would you have to say, 
no gray font on a black background. You know, it, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, they it's just a use a slightly different color. What what does right. the color mean exactly? Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a challenge. I, I agree that it's misleading, but how you demonstrate that and how you regulate that is a challenge. I did is, spend yeah. some time um, as a senior scientist, a visiting scientist at the Consumer Financial, um, the CFPB, Consumer Financial Protection Agency. And you learn that actually things get complicated. Um, so originally, you know the fees that are used for if you overdraw your checking account. And many banks will charge you a $30 fee to clear the check you've written or more likely your debit card. You're at Starbucks, you use a debit card. It costs $5. You have $4 in your account. All of a sudden they've paid it. Good news. But you've paid, they've charged you $30 for the fee. Right. Now, it turns out um, one of the very first things in the new consumer protection movement after the recession that was done was to try and make that an opt-in as opposed to an opt-out process. How would that work? Well, basically, you'd have to say, yes, I want to be charged $30. Before you, before they pay it for you. Right. right. And actually, okay. that would be when I signed up for the account, not right then. Right. Yeah. Got so it. Got big, it. Big difference. And it turns out they were very good I mean, at, at exp- as emphasizing the benefits of having overdraft protection. Got it. So people eventually move from having no overdraft protection to having it. Now, you may want to have overdraft protection. That's perfectly fine. But it seems that lots of people are upset and not didn't know. And how you would write. So people tried to write the regulation, but firms were pretty clever getting around it. Because banks make more money when consumers don't have overdraft protection, right? Because a lot of people probably just no. They make more money when I do have overdraft protection. So I'm get paying. I'm paying thirty dollars every time I bounce a check or do a do a swipe, and I don't have the money in the account. Sorry, yeah. So yeah. sorry, it's, yeah. It's, when it's when it does happen, it's confusing, yeah. but yes. Got it. Got it. Interesting, huh? Um, now, what are some of the things that you've learned through research in the book around just around like um, other practices that companies do that can help educate more of us consumers that are trying to buy regular things. I mean, I think, I think it was you that had this research or you quoted this research where there was a one second delay when, when there was, Uh, when you were accessing information, can you go into that and and kind of what the, uh, I think it was like a a web where you were hovering over a box screen and it was just, it, it wasn't even noticeable for the person that's actually on the other side, but the, systematically put a one second delay so that people can see more of the information. So this is a a nice example of one thing that one of the ways we are limited is I wouldn't say we're lazy, but we are impatient. Mm. And one of the things we are impatient for is search. So introducing small costs, like for example, having to make a phone call as opposed to doing it on the web can actually have more impact on what we do. Mm. So one of the classic results is that it turns out people are Impatient, if you give them classic example, I'll give you $50 today or $60 in four weeks. Now, it turns out, do the calculation, that's 108% interest roughly. You should wait. There's no question. But people don't. Um, It turns out, by the way, to query theory, one of the ways of changing that is I say, you have $60 in four weeks. Do you want to switch 
$50 today, first. people okay. will stick to the first one. So that's one way where choice architecture can make people more patient. Got it. But what we did is actually, we have people you look at with a mouse to see what choice you're making. And we can delay opening up some boxes by one second. We actually get it down to about 500 milliseconds these days. And that gets people to change how they look at the information. And by changing what I call the plausible path, the path people use to look at information, you can make them much more patient. So by making some comparisons easy, we make them more patient. Making other comparisons harder, we make them less patient. So very small cost, a second delay. And we're paying people, actually. People are actually getting Amazon gift certificates for these choices. Right. Um, we change their behavior. Interesting. And so what, what would be like one example of what they are delaying, like what box are they delaying that allows them to make a different? So it turns out the thing that people find attractive there is having more money. So if you make it easier than compare the $50 to the $60, they go, oh, I'll be patient. If you make it easier for them to compare the get it now versus get it later, they become more impatient. Mm. One of those comparisons encourages patience. The other encourages impatience and just adding a second delay in making that comparison makes a, makes a difference. Huh. Wow. Yeah. And here we thought we have all this control over our minds of what decisions we make and, you know, free will and all that stuff, but clearly shows that it's not the case. Um, yeah. I've, I've always generally found with any decisions uh, either I've learned this from someone, but any big decisions, I've just learned to wait 24 hours or at least sleep on it. And 99% of the time I make better decisions. Just I always have a different perspective or I'm more conviction. I have bigger conviction on the decision that I had, or it's a completely different decision. It just seems like it just comes down to patience because that's kind of one of our flaws and it's getting more and more, accelerated as our attention span becomes lower with all these different technologies that the framework should just be wait and sleep on it before you make any big decisions. And obviously making decisions using your phone, using the web makes it harder to wait. Yeah. Right. right? Because right. You've it's, got it's right there in front of well. you and mm-hmm. I'm going to go away for 24 hours and come back. Not easy. There's yeah. a very famous example from Ben Franklin who actually was uh, giving advice to um, a very famous scientist in England who was asking him a question about, should he take this job or not? And Franklin said, I can't tell you what to do, but I can tell you how to make the decision. He said, what you do is you write down on a piece of paper, cons and pros, and sit down and write down all the things that come to mind. And here's the important thing. He said, then go away and come back and write down more things that come to mind. And what happens, what's beautiful about that example is by waiting, interference stops. Because normally you think about the pros, you think about more pros, more reasons to take the job in this case. And the cons are harder to think about. And, you know, I don't know if you do crossword puzzles, but I do. And sometimes I have no idea. I know, I know it's, I know, I know that word, but I can't think of it. Interference is raising its ugly head and keeping me from, knowing something. Now, if I walk away and come back, it's like that. It's because inhibition or interference has stopped. 
influencing me. And so what Franklin said is basically over the course of a couple of days, he thought it should be longer, different pros and different cons will come to mind. And then you'll have a more balanced set of things to think about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great insight. I think there are um, contexts, right? I guess for, I think Jeff Bezos said this really well. He said there's type one decisions and then there's type two decisions. And it just kind of goes, gives you a framework to make certain decisions differently. So type one decisions are ones that are very reversible and something that is really easy to switch. Maybe it's around what t-shirt you want to wear for the day. And those are the ones where you want to make it incredibly fast and just move on. Whereas the type two decisions are irreversible. So this would be an example of what you mentioned about the job or, or starting what company you want to start or investment you want to take, whatever it might be. Uh, and those are the ones where you really want to be more patient on. And so maybe it's not every decision, every single decision that you have to wait on for people that are listening. It's, it's kind of figuring out and breaking those down into different types of decisions. One of them would be kind of what Jeff Bezos mentioned. No, I think that's right. Yeah. Are, are there any other kind of uh, frameworks that have helped you make better decisions? We mentioned kind of patience and, um, and, and, you know, ultimately just waiting. That seems to be kind of the best one for most people because they can just clear out their thoughts and clarify what they're thinking. Has there been anything else that can help people make more informed decisions in their everyday lives or big decisions that could potentially change our lives? Well, the thing that I, I think about choice architecture is it really is a set of tools. And we've not talked about many of them. We've talked about defaults. So yeah. let me give you one example of a default. One of the things that's important to realize, by the way, is that we're all choice architects. We're all designers. Okay, so one of the things that you know I've thought a lot about is the fact that when I present choices for my students, to my spouse, to anyone, I've become the choice architect. Mm -hmm. So imagine you're going out to eat. Where should we go? Well, I'm deciding how many restaurants. I'm deciding the order of restaurants to give you. I'm deciding how to describe each restaurant. You know, so I actually, as a, as a designer, have a lot of control over the choices that my spouse makes. Yeah. My spouse is in the same field, so I think she has more <laughs> more control than <laughs> I do. through it, yeah. <laughs> but, but certainly, um, you know, we are both aware. Yeah. But those are th decisions we make. So, for example, in real life, small things. But like whenever I, I'm sure you're used to the game of email setting up times. And, you know, I also used to say anytime Thursday or Friday would be fine when we're setting up a time. And I realized I'm not indifferent. Mm -hmm. I really, for example, I was writing the book. I tried to get all my meetings late in the day so I could write, have under time to write. So rather than say anytime Thursday or Friday, I would say, how's Thursday at four? Yeah. I mean, it's easily changed, but that becomes a default that gets selected much more of the time than if I just said Thursday or Friday. Right. And so I'm seeing people do this all the time now. They're saying, how's a certain time? I'm flexible. Mm. But that default makes a difference. And so, you know, this is something as a choice architect or as a designer, we'll get to do. So not only can we improve our own decisions, but I'm turning this a little bit to say, you can help improve the decisions of those around you, or at least make the process more efficient because, uh, notice they've all said it prevented the three or four emails back and forth. Right. 
Right. And there's also, you're kind of helping them in some ways because there's less con- cognitive effort for them Absolutely. to think about, well, what are the times that I'm free? It's just kind of defaulting to, to that. Yeah. So defaults actually can be very good if they're used appropriately. Hmm. Right. Is that kind of one other example that is kind of a classic one is around, I think it was around the, the book Influence um, by Robert Cialdini, which, which I'm sure mm-hmm. you're familiar with. Uh, or someone, something else, but it was framed around how pricing should work. And obviously there's like anchoring and everything, but they've got three options. One of them is like um, uh, print only. The other one is, uh, which is like a dollar or something like that. And then you have a, th- you have a second option, which is like print plus something else. And then you have a third option, which is the same price as the second option where you get three or four different things. Obviously they're trying to default you to those ones. So kind of getting into the specifics of that, whether you are someone that's selling something or whether you're someone that's buying something, what is like the ideal number of options to offer? And what are some of the frameworks and the way people frame it to get to the one that you want people to choose? Right. So you're asking two. These are general, these are big questions, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, but, and actually it's interesting. So, a good example, um, ah, here's my favorite example, which is dating sites, okay? Dating sites are choice architecture. So whoever's designing the site is going to change my behavior. Yeah. And one of the early sites, meaning about 2015, that limited choice was called Coffee Meets Bagel. Oh, yeah. Designed by and, Koreans, by the way. Yes, and actually a very famous startup. And they were designing a site, which was meant at the time for people like themselves, women. Got it. And they said, you know, we think that when we give people too many choices, they think differently. Hmm. So let's dig into what that means a little bit. What they originally did, there were lots of things that they did, but one of the first things they did was they gave you one choice every day. Compare that to OkCupid that gives you 12 and you can ask for more. Or God forbid, Tinder, where there's a a line from Urban Dictionary that says Tinder thumb is basically hopelessness induced by having to switch (laughs) among too many potential dates. Yeah. Now, do you think about those three worlds the same way? Well, it turns out if I see one, I'm going to read more about the profile. If I see hundreds, do you think there's an attribute that people use? And what do you think that that characteristic of, of the potential dates is? Right. Physical. Yeah, it's going to be appearance. Yeah. And so, you know, my bet is, and we know this, is that people, when they have too many options, screen. So yeah. there, there's a classic study, a nice study that I, I like a lot that says um, women, a, a group, there are a group of women who insist that the man is taller than they are. In fact, four inches so that they can wear heels and not tower over the man. Right, right. And Girls love you know, basically they're going to be screening based on height. Right? Yeah. Now, the reality is, of course, that's not going to be the most important thing in a relationship. There's probably other substantive things you should be considering, but you're going to be screening and that mm-hmm. can be a problem. So you know, the argument is that basically you're going to get people picking more interesting or more unusual partners when they see fewer rather than more. Mm. 
So I, 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 the, the coffee meets bagel model, I got fascinated in this in part because my wife always reads the vows section of the New York Times. Yeah. And I started reading it and they always talked about how people met. And it seemed to me, and I don't know if this is not fact, but it seemed to me the people who met through coffee meets bagel seemed more different than each other. Mm, and the people right. who met other ways, you know, they, they yeah, were all yeah. cookie cutters. The interesting couples, the couples that were unusual were from coffee meets bagel. Why? Because they actually had to look past, you know, the appearance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even just the idea of like the romantic idea of you meeting someone at a grocery store and you both reach for the avocado at the same time. And all of a sudden this person is so special where chances are, if you met them at a dating site, or if you were to see them on Tinder, you probably would have swiped left. You know, it's just, there's a total different perception in terms of how we think about people, even though they are the same people. And we just can't see through that. And yeah, so get back to your point, you could argue that in that case, fewer options, or at least options with more time is better. Doesn't that, isn't that interesting though, that at the end of the day, Tinder and Bumble, which are predicated on this idea of unlimited options, given that the way I think they have stood out is they just present you with one option in one visual screen. It's mm -hmm. not like a list of people, which is kind of the fault of some other dating apps, but isn't it interesting that they ended up actually being more successful in coffee meets bagel. I don't know. I'm sure they're very successful and maybe they have made more meaningful matches, however you define that, but it, but it is commercially more successful Bumble and Tinder. And well, it depends on what matches. your business model is, right? As you pointed out, the three sisters who started Coffee Meets Bagel wanted to find a website that would be useful for people like them. Yeah. They yeah. didn't want to have the website with the biggest market. They wanted to have a website with particular characteristics. Got it. Got it. So fewer options. That's definitely one of them. Um, the particular example that I'm thinking is you're trying to figure out what restaurant to go to, or let's say you are presented a package, a compensation package, which is probably the biggest decision maker from a company. And you get two or three options. Um, I guess for one is like knowing that going past the idea that there are fewer options is better. Is there a certain breakage line? Like is, is three options actually better than just presenting one option? So it is technically more options, but there is this kind of middle ground where you want to give people a little bit more options than just one. So I think your restaurant example is really good because one thing is that I, as the choice architect, as the designer, don't know much about you. Imagine that case. If I knew exactly what you wanted, I could give you one restaurant. The reality is, in most cases, we don't. Amazon doesn't know exactly what kind of, of book I'm looking for. Of course, everyone should be looking for the elements of choice, That's it. but it doesn't know what, what kind of book I'm looking for. And they use you know, fairly sophisticated collaborative filtering uh, to try and figure out what people like me would want. Sure. Now, when I don't know what people want, you don't want to be presented one restaurant. You don't want to present in two restaurants, or you don't want to present one flight or two flights. You want to have a larger set. So that's a case where, so the answer is, unfortunately, there's not going to be three is the right number. Mm -hmm. It's going to be thinking about two kinds of processes. One is the fact that as I increase the number of options, people are going to tune, tend to tune out or screen, do the equivalent of the, the flipping thumb. Okay, But particularly if I don't know what people want, 
if I restrict the choice set too narrowly, I'm going to prevent them from finding the best option. Yeah. The thing about coffee meets bagel is tomorrow was always another day. Mm. You know, you didn't really present just one. You presented just one that day and they eventually loosened it up a little bit. Mm. But if I don't know what you want, I can't get away with limiting the number of options as much as if I do know a lot about you. So um, one of the classic cases of overchoice, in my, my view, is in New York City, kids and their parents choose what high schools to apply to. So how many schools would you present if you were trying to present, um, you know, Eric, a set of high schools? How many would you present? Well, the city of New York gave people 769 in the form of a book. Oh, my God. And I tell the story in the book about a young uh, son of Jamaican immigrants who was the uh, valedictorian of his his school, who applied to the 10 very best schools. And it turns out it's a competition. He got into none of them. Right. Right. And there he really didn't have to look. He looked at who has the best graduates. And that was not all that was going on. There were lots of things like how, what percentage of students who get in, mm-hmm. apply, get in. You should have been looking at. So that's a case where there's too much choice. Um, you could easily, as a designer, as a choice architect, help that chooser. You could say, look, look let me ask you a couple of questions before I set, show you the list. First off, where do you live? So if, you're, if you live in the Bronx, you probably aren't that interested in schools in Staten Island. Right. So you might want to actually do some screening for people based on geography. Do you want college prep or do you want vocational? I could then restrict the choice set more. So you could actually do quite a bit in improving choice by restricting the choice set, but based on what you know about the person, mm-hmm. not just on a, a silly rule, like we only show you 10. If I knew which 10 to show you, that's good advice. Right. right. But I have to have a much better idea of what you want. Got it. So, so if you're the person that's making the, the, the choice architect, I guess, it's just best to ask as many questions as possible up front if you have the ability to do so um, and, and try to limit those options. Not, but let's say if you have, let's say you do want to present options and I'm just going to choose three or let's say five, mm-hmm. but you as a choice architect, you want someone to make a certain decision. Like you, you have in your mind, Let's say you want to go to the perfect restaurant. You want Indian food. You're presenting them with Thai food, Indian steak, you know, escargot, whatever you call it. But you really want Indian food. What are some of the things that you can do as a choice architect to get people into that decision? Obviously, the, the obvious one is probably present four really crappy options and just make the Indian one really good. But is there anything else that can kind of nudge people in the right direction? So one of the things that matters is the order in which you present things. Mm. So this is why, for example, many consumer financial good firms actually pay tens of thousands of dollars to be on certain shelves. Hmm. It turns out people are much more likely to choose things that are just below eye level. Just below the eye level. Right. Now, why would that be? Well, what do people look at first? The things that are just at eye level or below. You don't walk like this. You walk like this, and right, you right. actually. So it turns out there, there are strong. There's the industry knows this. Mm-hmm. That's why they, there are these these large payments 
for self-placement. Right. Um, so how do they do that? Well, it turns out that there are lots of order effects and it gets a little bit complicated, but let me give you my favorite example, which is Eurovision Song Contest. There have been studies, okay, so I don't know if you've ever been in Europe in, in April when Eurovision is held, well, but I've there's usually like 32 <laughs> songs, you know, yeah. countries entering, and it's, all, it's vast. And it turns out you can show that the la- being last there is very helpful. Why? Because you have to remember each of the acts. So being last there is helpful. It's in supermarkets, you're not going to have to look at everything. If you're saying, what, what ice cream do I want? You grab it and go away. So even there, order makes a difference. Order is important, but it's different if I'm looking at the options or if I'm trying to remember them. Mm. Again, memory is, plays an important role. Interesting. So if you were to verbally take visual aside, if you right. were just to communicate with someone and say, hey, we're going to go to a restaurant today. Here are the three options. If you want a particular option, let's say Indian food, you would say Indian last because of recency right. bias. I would exactly do that. I also, just in case, would do another Indian restaurant first. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, this is, this is, uh, this is really useful. Um, well, yeah, I mean, the, these were kind of the, the main things I wanted to touch on, Eric. Was there anything in particular that you feel would be, that kind of really stood out from, from writing the book? Of course, for people that um, are, are listening to it, you guys can pre-order or order now Elements of Choice, Why the Way We Decide Matters by Eric Johnson, um, which is kind of covers a lot of the things that we just talked about on the podcast today. Anything else that is kind of a key takeaway from the book that you think would be useful for people to, to learn about or to can kind of get them enticed into learning more about the topic itself? So one of the things that I think is really important if you're going to be a responsible student of decision-making is to understand there's a difference between stories, one of studies, and area things that have a lot of evidence for them. Mm-hmm. And so it was a struggle to try and make this approachable. But the idea that basically... You want to work on replicable science. So let's take defaults. Great example. You know, people read our first study, it was in science, gotten many, many citations. Um, and they s- decided, oh, it must be the case you're getting a 50% gap, depending upon what the default is. Now, it turns out the gap is smaller than that sometimes. Hmm. But the only way you know that is to look at a broad set of studies. And this is where it's boring because it's not the kind of thing that gets in the newspapers. But it turns out when you look at all the studies that have changed defaults, there's still a pretty big, like 30% difference between something that's pre-checked and something that's not pre-checked. So if you're into this area, thinking about that kind of perspective, looking at more than one study, not just one cute result that is very easy to remember, I think is really useful. Um, It's because governments are using this stuff. Firms are using this stuff. It's really important for both scientists to be responsible and not just talk about one study, but do the kinds of hard work to summarize things. And that's something I try and do in the book while at the same time being memorable and having good stories. That's That's the challenge as a writer. It is. I think it's, it's really important to realize what happens in one study is not enough. You need to look at a broad set of studies. And if you're really lucky, you figure out why, like I just talked about with either the um, number of options, why you want to present more or less. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. not going to be as simple. We don't 
you could say, what's the right number of engines for a plane? Well, it's going to depend upon the kind of plane it is. Yeah. So what's the kind of options you? Well, you need to understand why this is happening. And so the hard part is understanding what happens across different domains and why. When can we rely on something? When is it going to be not as reliable? Yeah, definitely. And then certainly deep into the book itself, and I can certainly say that the, the story element is really what got me enticed. So definitely worth checking those out because there's some really great use cases of, 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 of stories that, uh, that can kind of put a lot of things that we have talked about into practice. And um, I would highly recommend that. So even as consumers, I think just being generally aware of some of the things that could be thrown at you of why certain companies offer certain decisions and why some, some things are default uh, will help us make better decisions. So Eric, I really appreciate you for coming on the show and uh, where can people find out and learn more about you? And of course, check out the elements of choice, why the way we decide matters. The website's live now. It's called theelementsofchoice.com or elementsofchoice.com. And you can find out more about me and pre-order the book and see some videos and uh, hopefully enjoy that as well. Sean, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Eric. It was a pleasure. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.